right, grab a Bible. Let's go to Ephesians. We're going to go to chapter 4. Now, we're going to be out of Luke today uh, because one of the things you got when you came in is you got a card that has a blank part of it. Joy, Billy, can you grab me one of those cards? You got a blank card. Oh, Justin Christian, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, Joy probably wouldn't do that. All right, um, you got a blank card. Now, this is not for phone numbers, okay, you college kids. Uh, This is not for doodling, you adult kids. Uh, This, we're gonna do something with this, and so I wanna set this up by jumping out of Luke, going into Ephesians, uh, and a couple of other places. And, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, what, it, what it looks like when we grow in our relationship with Jesus. Because we're going to do some stuff on Good Friday that I, I want set up kind of well. Because whenever we talk about growing in Jesus, so often we limit that conversation to just behavior. And certainly that is part of the conversation, but there's a prior and deeper conversation that goes into growing like Jesus, and it goes something like this. Each and every one of you has an inherited identity. Uh, The family you were born into, the, the ethnicity you have, the socioeconomic status of your family, everybody has an inherited identity, a world given identity that is the sum of, good morning, that is the sum of, hey, that is the sum of experiences you've had things that have been said over you that have blessed you, things that have been said over you that have cursed you. Uh, An inherited identity can be given to you from families and and coaches and teammates and friends. And an inherited identity is a script that's written for you. Very often you didn't choose it. Right? So if you come from a poor family, there's a poor family script. And if you come from a wealthy family, there's a wealthy family script. And if you come from a certain ethnicity, there's an ethnicity script. And, 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 and it can be any number of things. There can be religious scripts and non-religious scripts that are written for you. And then as you go through life, you accumulate things that are said about you. I mean, if we had time, I can't only imagine the number of things and the amount of pain that sits in this room because uh, when we were kids... Right? Uh, Dad never told us he loved us. Or he told us some things that, that were hurting deeply, right? My parents divorced when I was nine. I was the first divorced family in my school. I was in third grade. And that became a script, an identity, you know, that I walked into. I didn't choose. So each and every one of us has an inherited identity. And, and sometimes that identity can be true, but it's never fully true. And in the Bible, that inherited identity is contrasted with your God-given, Christ-purchased identity. Now, we all know, if you've been following Jesus, we all know the theory about how much we're loved and how much we're delighted in, but none of us really believe that because our inherited identity is incredibly resilient. So the things that were said to us, the things that were done to us, the things that we've done to ourselves, all of that kind of hangs with us. And so part of the journey with Christ is learning to lay down that inherited identity and pick up this Christ-purchased, God-given identity. And we all know the theory, but living in the fullness of that new identity is what we want to talk about a bit this morning. Now, Paul does this really interesting thing in a lot of his letters. What he will normally do, Ephesians chapter 4, is that Paul will... Um, he will usually spend some time doing something called the indicative. He divides his letters into the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is 
the indication of what Christ has done, the imperative is then the command to do something in response. And it, so the indicative indicates what's been done. The imperative is what we do in response. Now, the, the central area of growth in the Christian life is recognizing that it's always in that order. Never does Paul say, do this and you'll be blessed. He says, rather, you're blessed, so do this. He doesn't say, do this and you'll be loved. He says, no, you're loved, so do this. So in Ephesians, he does this. Uh, incredibly, because for the first three chapters in the book of Ephesians, there's only one imperative, there's only one command, and that is to remember. The rest of those three chapters, it is, it is the recitation of who we were apart from Christ and who we are now in Christ. So, fire up the iPad if you would. Apart from Christ, we are dead in our transcripts. So this is a summary of the first three chapters. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. We're following the ways of the world. We're ruled by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, enslaved to the cravings and desires of our sinful nature. We are objects of wrath, excluded from citizenship, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God, far away, and we have no identity as a people. In Christ, blessed with every spiritual blessing, chosen before the creation of the world, We are saints, we're holy, we're blameless, we're brought near, we're fellow citizens, we're adopted as sons and daughters. We're given grace, we're saved, redeemed, forgiven, we're the dwelling place of God's Spirit, members of God's household, predestined, included in Christ, sealed by the Spirit, recipients of God's lavish grace, recipients of God's glorious inheritance, alive with Christ. We are building blocks of God's temple, raised with Christ, seated with Christ, alive with Christ, God's workmanship, members of the new humanity, and we have access now to the Father. Right. Now, the fact that that doesn't floor us and that a lot of you are thinking right now, yeah, yeah, I got that. Right? I mean, because we got the theory, but none of us live in this. I mean, if you actually believed it, the Christian life you would live would be so much different from the Christian life we really live. Because so much, I mean, first three chapters, before Paul says to do anything, the only thing he says to do is remember. And then he gives you that list. And you realize that you could spend weeks on every one of those statements. I mean, take adoption. Paul uses this image, we are adopted as sons and daughters. The image is incredibly beautiful given the Roman legal system of the day. So here's how you would adopt somebody. If you were a childless couple uh, and you were Roman, what you could do is you could pick a slave and bring that slave into your family. The father, who was the head of the house, who had absolute power over the household, the father would initiate this process. Adoption meant son placing in those days. You would initiate this process, and you would have a public sort of ceremony where you you stated your intent to adopt. Uh, The person being adopted would have to agree. And, And then here's what would happen under Roman law. First thing is, all of the debts of the slave would be canceled. Second thing is, the slave's old identity would disappear, and the slave would now share in the new identity of the new family. And then lastly, and most awesomely, under Roman law, you could not disown adopted children. You could only disown biological children. Right? Now, some of us who are parents, we understand that temptation quite well. But think about the power of that imagery. The biological son Jesus was estranged for a season 
so that the adopted sons and daughters could come flooding in. I mean, the metaphor is just, it's brilliant what Paul is doing. And this is just one of that whole list, right? I mean, here's what he's saying. He takes slavery in the, in the first century, fearful circumstances, no hope. Slaves had low status, inferior. There were subjects to their rulers in Rome. And he, he makes the analogy. We were slaves too, of bondage and fear and sin. Uh, objects of shame in God's eyes, inferior according to the standards of the law, subjects to the kingdom of darkness. In Roman adoption, you move from one family to another. A new father, new family. The father chooses and you share in that family's higher status and new identity. So too, Paul says, you move from one kingdom to another. You have a new father, new family. The father chooses, you share in the family's higher status, new identity, and name. In Roman adoption, you receive comfort and assurance. Leave your own family. Debts are canceled. You cannot be disowned. And in God's adoption, you receive comfort and assurance. Leave your old family. Debts are canceled. And you cannot be disowned. So that's one picture of that whole list. That's how rich this is. You have an inherited identity, things spoken over you, done to you, things you think. And then you have this. And the problem with Christians, and I'm being one of them, is that we don't really know this precisely because we think we already do. Right? The biggest barrier to actually knowing something is to think you got it all figured out. But if you actually lived that identity, you'd live radically differently, as would I. So the tension in the Christian life is how do you lay down the inherited identity you've received and how do you pick up the new one so that the gap between your experience and the theory closes? Because that's really what we're after. So, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Notice what Paul says here. This, this is key. So after three chapters of indicative, he finally says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life what? Worthy of the calling you have received. Now, I think the key to the Christian life is to understanding the word worthy. Because you can hear worthy one of two different ways. You can hear worthy like, hey, look at all that God has done. Now live up to it. Look at all that God has done. Pay Him back. Look at God has done. Deserve such sacrifice. Or you could read worthy in an entirely different way. See, I, some of us read worthy. Do you remember the movie Saving Private Ryan? Anybody? My wife has a slight affection for Matt Damon, and so we've seen that a couple of times. That's why we got married, because there is a similar likeness. <laughs> and so... And I, I, and I wanted to see it just because there was you know, war. And so we, we go in, and if you've never seen the movie, it's absolutely gruesome, the most gruesome depiction of war that I've ever seen. All of our veterans are like, yep, that's what it's like. Because it's, it's, it begins with the Normandy invasion. And Tom Hanks plays this captain leading a, leading a group of men onto shore. And the, the beginning of it's just intense. And he finally gets to shore, and he receives kind of strange orders. His squad is ordered to go find Private Ryan, who was played by Matt Damon. And the reason they're to go rescue Private Ryan is that Private Ryan is the fourth child of a certain family. The other three of the sons have died. The Secretary of War has decreed that he's not going to send another letter, death notice, back to the same mom. And so go rescue this Private Ryan. 
So the story is of Tom Hanks' squad and all of the sacrifices they endure to rescue somebody who's going to get pulled out of the war and sent home. Can you imagine how much they resented that whole thing? Particularly when they finally find him and then there's this massive battle. Most of the squad dies. Tom Hanks is laying there dying. They finally find Private Ryan. Tom Hanks is dying and he grabs Tom Hanks and he pulls him close. You remember what he says? He says, earn this. Earn this. Now, how do you pay that back? Right? So 50, the movie pauses, and then 50 years later, we meet Private Ryan standing at a gravestone, tears running down his face as he asks his wife, am I a good man? In other words, did I earn their sacrifice? See, sometimes we read when Paul says something like live a life worthy as if Jesus of Nazareth was sitting on the cross looking at everybody going, earn this. Pay this back. Be deserving of this. And even though our theology won't let us read it that way, that's how it feels. Right? And so we sit and think, am I my good man? My good woman? And it's almost paralyzing in a sense. Thankfully, the word that Paul uses for worthy is the word axios. The word axios means live a life corresponding to the calling you've received. Live a life fitting of the calling you've received. Live a life congruent with the calling you've received. In other words, you're holy, so live holy. You're righteous, so be righteous. You're loved, so be loved. In other words, Paul says, become who you already are. You're already these things, so become them. Now, you're looking at me like, hmm, it's not terribly helpful. A couple of dumb examples that maybe you've heard me use before. I got married at 29. Shocking. That didn't happen sooner. Can we agree? <laughs> got married at 29. Now, for those of you who are single... Uh, and, of, and of marriageable age, you are accumulating a certain way of living as a bachelor or bachelorette. For me, right, that was a lot of years living on my own. And I accumulated certain habits and patterns of living that were totally appropriate to a single man. So things like laundry. If you would go into my bedroom, you had three piles. Clean, worn once, unwearable. And laundry was done when there was just one pile. Okay? That's when you knew. Would you ever wash your bed sheets? No. I'm the only one sleeping in them. I like the way I smell. I think it's fine. Right? It's my grime. I don't care. I'm fine. Do you ever make your bed? Why would you? You're just going to mess it up later. Dishes are meant to soak. <laughs> Can I get an amen, sister? Now the problem is I would soak them for so long, there, there, things would grow. And I would just throw them away and buy new ones. Now that, that was a different... I'm not like that anymore. But I lived a lifestyle totally congruent with an identity as a bachelor. I stood in front of Eric Hurd, who was here for many, many years, and he pronounced me a husband. July 9th, 2000. Was I a husband? 
Yep. Did I know what it meant to be a husband? Nope. So learning to be a husband meant that I was putting off behaviors that were appropriate to a single man, and I was putting on behaviors that were appropriate to being a married man. I was becoming what was already true of me. I was declared a husband before I knew what it meant to be one. And it was the security of the covenant that allowed me to grow imperfectly to being a husband. I mean, I realized that duvet covers are real things. (laughs) That dust ruffles, they matter. That beds can be made and unmade. That dishes can be washed and reused. That toilet paper goes over the top, ladies and gentlemen, not up from the bottom. That's right. This is what I learned. But do you see the analogy? The covenant and the security of it allowed me to grow into what was already true of me. Or take fatherhood, right? No one told me when the kids are born, they look awful. They look awful, they're scaly, they're bloody, they're misshapen, it's horrible. It is horrible. My wife said, you got to watch these videos. I don't want to watch the videos. It's going to be bad enough to see one live. I don't want to watch any more than I have to. So here comes a kid. Am I a father at that point? Yes. Can I be an unfather? No. The worst moment, one of the worst moments of my life is when we drove and took it home. Because when you're in the hospital... You've got nurses helping, and you got, you know, you got all kinds of stuff. And then all of a sudden you're home, and it's just you and the sweetie and this. And I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm a father. So the rest of my parenting life, I'm learning to become what's already true of me. I'm declared a father, I am a father, and now I'm putting off old identity as a couple, and I'm putting on a new identity as a family. And it's the security of that bond that allows me to do it imperfectly. See, this is what Paul is saying. Live a life worthy means put off your inherited identity and put on the new one. And guess what? That takes a long time. And it plays itself out not in theory, but in your real life. So there are certain ways of living and thinking and acting and speaking that are no longer fitting for you as someone in Christ. Now, here's why this matters so much. It matters because it means as you imperfectly work out your new identity, grace is ahead of you and not just behind you. See, I always picture grace as that act of God that cleans up my mess behind me. Right? I'm wrecking relationships and I'm screwing things up and I'm apologizing and I'm confessing and he's just sweeping it. But that, that's not only what grace does. Grace is ahead of you. So when I'm not perfectly a husband or when I'm not perfectly a father, the relationship itself isn't in jeopardy. I'm learning to become what I already am because grace is in front of me. I'm running to it. You understand that? So I'm moving from grace to grace to grace to grace and more grace. That's what's ahead of you. It's not just what's behind you. And if you actually believe that, that grace is in front of you, then we don't have to hide anymore. Then I can admit I'm not a perfect husband. I'm not a perfect father. Why? Because in a covenant, 
Imperfection doesn't threaten the relationship. Grace leads me. That's why Paul will say his kindness leads us to repentance. You've got it! Now walk in it. And when you don't, you still got it. See, we just don't believe that. No one here believes that. And the reason, uh, and, and not just the reason, but what happens when we don't believe that is we get tempted and suckered into believing there's something else out there. Go, if you would, to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. Oh, we're cooking. I'm cooking. You were right. Whoever was fanning, you were right. Could you come here and just fan? Colossians chapter 2. Now, oh my goodness, i got to hurry. Paul is dealing with a particular false teaching in this church. And uh, the false teaching, I think, and there are lots of debates about this. we got New Testament scholars here that you know, uh, could give you all the debates. But, but my particular take of what Paul was wrestling with is that this was some sort of, it was a Jewish form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, uh, there, it comes in many forms. It was like, kind of like the New Age movement. It was kind of fuzzy. There, so there were different versions of it. Gnostics believed that there was secret knowledge of the angelic realm that would help human beings access something called the pleroma of God. Pleroma is a word for fullness. The idea was God's fullness was diffused throughout the world and that you had to move closer to it to experience it. So it's kind of like sunshine. The closer you get to sunshine, the more intense it is. The farther away you are, the less intense it is. Pleroma was the pleroma, the fullness of God was diffused throughout the angelic realm, barely noticeable in the realm of matter. And the Gnostics believed there was secret knowledge of all the angelic names and hierarchies that you could access to experience and participate in the Pleroma of God. Now, if you didn't follow any of that, that's okay. It's not exactly what we'd be tempted with now. But I want you to notice, if that was indeed what Paul is addressing, notice how he addresses it. Colossians chapter 2, verse... Oh, 9. No, let's do 8. Paul writes, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now that's, so that's what I think he's addressing, this hollow and deceptive philosophy. Notice what he says, for in Christ all the what? All the fullness, that's the word pleroma. All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In other words, God's fullness isn't diffused somewhere else. It's all in Jesus. And in Christ, you have been brought to what? You have been brought to fullness. So, Paul is talking to people who are tempted to believe that there is fullness elsewhere. And that if they just had the secret knowledge, the insider code to understand the world of angels and hierarchies and secret names, then they could access more fullness. Paul looks at them and says, what do you mean more fullness? All the fullness of God lives in Jesus, and you are in Jesus, therefore you've got the fullness. There is nothing else 
out there. There's no secret experience. There's no secret knowledge. There's no mystical anything. You have Jesus. Jesus has it all. Therefore, you have it all too. You don't have to go looking anywhere. That is why, remember years ago there was this book called The Secret? It was Gnosticism, just dressed up in modern day clothes. It was The Secret. And it was a law that would allow you to attract certain material goods and blessings and things from the universe to you. But it was The Secret, right? And, and, and there was this sense that Christians even fell for that sucker. Because... We don't experience fullness, even though the Scripture says we've got it, right? Right? I mean, how would you live differently if you felt full? How would you live differently if you were living out of fullness rather than out of emptiness? How would you live differently if you actually believed these declarative statements in the Scriptures that are made over you? And the biggest one of those, go to Colossians 1, 1, See, this is what Paul's saying. Have you ever done this? Guys, have you seen my sunglasses? Anybody? Have you ever looked for something that was right on your face? Anybody? Thank you for your honesty. I got a couple of guys going, no, no, loser. I've literally been on the phone saying, babe, where's my phone? I can't find it anywhere. Right? And it is kind of embarrassing when you're looking for something you've already got, correct? This is what Paul's saying. Why are you looking for something you already have? There's no other pleroma out there. You've got it. You've got it. Now live in it. But there's a shorthand description that he uses to describe us. He uses it like 165 times. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, does anyone else think it's weird that he talks about being in Christ in the same way he talks about being in Colossae? So, hey, you're in Fullerton. And in that same way, you're in Christ. That's weird, isn't it? I mean, one's an address. So Paul's saying you have an address here too. His designation in Christ is like the most significant thing he says over and over and over. You are in Christ. Now, to picture what that means, I need Captain America and a mason jar. Okay, Captain America, you put him in the mason jar, whoops, and he is in the mason jar, would you agree? Why are you people leaving? This is the mason jar illustration. It's so good. This is the point. It's Captain America. He is in Captain America. Or, or, Captain America is in the jar. Would you agree? Yes. yes. And if I raise the jar, I raise Captain America. If I lower the jar, I lower Captain America. Right? I can't look at the jar without seeing Captain America, and I can't look at Captain America without seeing the jar. Would you agree? So in some way, what's true of the jar is true of Captain America, and what's true of Captain America is not true of the jar. When Paul will say in Colossians 3, your life is now hidden with Christ in God, or in Colossians 1, he will say to the faithful in Colossae who are in Christ, what he's simply saying is you have received by grace what he is by nature. 
He is fullness, you are fullness. He is holy, you are holy. He is righteous, you are righteous. Whatever's true of Him is now true of you. In the same way, the relationship between Captain America and a mason jar exists, you are now in Christ. An entirely new address, an entirely new identity, and you still aren't dazzled. You still don't believe it. You're still just like, yeah, I've heard this. What would it look like to live out of fullness and not emptiness? What would it look like? I mean, when I get done with Thanksgiving dinner, the last thing I'm looking for is something else to eat. Right? I mean, when you're full, you live a certain kind of way. When you're empty, you live a different kind of way. And so what would it look like for a community to actually believe they live and exist in fullness? What would that community be like? Well, they wouldn't be as afraid. They wouldn't envy as much or be jealous. They wouldn't be as angry. Be more humble, more grateful. Right? I mean, if you actually believed. So, part of the journey to Good Friday for us this year is to just get down on paper those parts that are no longer congruent with who we actually are. Because it takes a long time. I've told you this story before. I'm still looking for more stories. But the illustration is too good to not use it. Friends of ours adopted from the foster care system. You remember me telling you this story. And they, don't, they didn't hear much about the biological family. This new son comes into their house and, and they begin to find pockets of food all over their son's room. Stashed, hidden, in the mattress, under the bed. And so they ask him, what are you doing? And as the story comes out, his biological family would discipline him by locking him into his room on Friday and not letting him out until Monday morning. They wouldn't feed him. And so, I don't know about water, bathroom, any of that. They just said they wouldn't feed him. So, kids are smart and resilient, and so he would hide food in his room to get him through those weekends. So what, he, what does he naturally do when he comes to a new family? He hides food. Now, let me ask you a question. Suppose you are the mom or the dad of that kid who's now in your family. Are you furious with him for hiding food? You're not, I don't think. And I find it so interesting, later in Ephesians, when Paul says about our sin that we grieve the Holy Spirit, I wonder, I just wonder, if there isn't a picture in this for us too. Because if you were that parent, I I think this is what you'd say. You'd look at your son and you would say, you never have to hide food ever again. We'll never do that to you. That's not how our family works. But would that kid believe you? Nope. And so what would you have to do? Feed them. And say, over and over and over, you never have to hide food again. I look at that in a similar way to how God may look at us. A declaration of identity based on the finished work of Jesus, you are in Christ. And perhaps I wonder if your Abba Father looks at you and I 
and says every now and again, you don't have to hide food anymore. That's not the way it works in my family. You don't have to live out of emptiness anymore. You don't have to look for something. You've already got it. There is no other fullness out there. It's already yours. There is no other blessing out there. It's already yours. And I wonder if grieving the Holy Spirit becomes a way to express God's grief when He sees His children live dominated by their inherited identity and not their new one. So what I'd like for you to do You can do this now. You can do this this week. You can do this on Good Friday. You have these bits of paper, and there are questions on them. What are ways uh, you are living out of emptiness and not fullness? How are you living out of your old identity and not your new one? Is there anything keeping you from joining God's work in the world? And we want you just to list people, places, attitudes, actions, words, things done to you, things that you've done. Because on Good Friday, we're just going to bring those. God is a God of props. He gives us physical reminders of truth because we're forgetful. And so we're going to do one of those physical reminders. We're going to lay these cards down and pick others up. We're going to take the bread and the cup to remind us this isn't about self-esteem. This is about how beautiful the Gospel of Jesus actually turns out to be and how incredible His sacrifice is on our behalf. So what we want to do is we just want to spend a few moments reflecting. I want to pray for you and we're going to sing together. Father, the Scriptures say that the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are indeed Your children. And so my prayer, very simply, is that we would actually learn to believe it, to live it, to taste it, to seek it, to experience it. That we might live out of fullness and not out of emptiness. Though we might dare to believe the words spoken over us, the things done to us, our reputation with our friends, those aren't the most important things any longer. And so, Father, we just pray your blessing, your grace, your mercy upon us, that we would trust and believe these things.